Friends, good evening and welcome to our Good Friday service. This is going to be a different kind of service as the decor obviously indicates. Um, on the first Good Friday, it was not, it wasn't good. Um, I think we understand that. And our hope tonight is that we would all get an opportunity to enter into the drama of what happened to Jesus and to the first disciples on that Friday and realize that when we suffer, we do not suffer alone. That's the hope for tonight. Suffering is something that we all deal with. Suffering primarily means that we have to wait. It means we have to wait. When we're suffering, oftentimes God asks us to wait. He wants us to hold on. And that's part of what makes it so difficult for us to respond and handle suffering. Because we want our situations to change. I know how many of you want situations to change. We want people to change. Uh, we want parts of ourself to change. But God doesn't act on our schedule. God seems to have other plans in mind. And, and so even when we pray, even when we read the Bible, even when we go to church, even when we talk to friends, it seems like all that we're getting is that God wants us to simply wait. And there's really two ways. Like we have this time of waiting um, and, and that we're forced into, and there's usually two responses that we have while we're waiting in the midst of our suffering. And I want to just show these two ways that we, two ways that we respond while we wait in suffering. One, we can grumble. Or two, we can lament. I want to talk about these things for just a minute. Grumbling is, is complaining. It's becoming bitter. It's being honest about our suffering, that we are suffering, and that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing for us to be honest. Um, but when we complain, we get angry, we make other people around us suffer. Uh, we hurt other people with our attitudes, with our words, with our actions. And we feel justified because we're suffering, don't we? Grumbling makes us then the focus when we grumble out loud to other people. And in the midst of all of this, grumbling is complaining against God. Okay, it's complaining against God. We ask God, like, why do you do this? Sometimes we don't even ask him that. We just complain. Like, God, why is this happening? Why don't you care? Where are you? Grumbling often looks like this. It's, it's me versus God. Okay, when we respond in our waiting time of suffering, typically it's us versus God. Um, it's like we have these circumstances that we wish were different, and we're on the side of the circumstances. It's us and these circumstances against God. And grumbling, it adds to the load. I don't know if you've noticed this. I mean, we think grumbling will make us feel better. We think that if we grumble, then it'll, that things will get better and we'll feel better about ourselves, but that's just not true. Grumbling actually causes us to um, experience 
an even greater load. And what happens is that grumbling separates us from God and the people around us that we hurt. So lamenting, though, on the other hand, um, lamenting is different. Um, Lamenting is bringing your frustrations to God. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that you can lament. The Bible is full of people who lament. Lamenting is turning your pain and suffering into frustrated prayer. Okay, that's what lamenting is. It's turning your, uh, your suffering and your pain into frustrated prayer. And again, you're being honest about your suffering, but you are giving it to God. You're being honest with God about your suffering. What you're doing is you're inviting God in and you're trusting that God cares. And what this does is this actually lightens the load. That's what lamenting does. It actually lightens the load. When you pray your frustration and your pain, you go into the presence of God and you feel lighter because, I mean, to change the image, you're inviting God in and God actually comes in under the weight with you. And he carries both the load and you as you lament. And so the way this looks, this is what grumbling looks like. But here's lamenting. Lamenting isn't me versus God, but lamenting is me with God. Right? When you lament, you're going to God with all the pain, with all the frustration, with all the suffering, with, the, you know, with everything going on, and you're going in and being with God. And so with lamenting, it's, again, the circumstances, but now it's the circumstances against God and you. And now you're joining onto God's side and you're acknowledging that God is on your side. And so even if you're frustrated now, you're frustrated along with God. You're inviting God in more deeply. And even if God asks us to wait, now we're not waiting alone anymore. And so lamenting turns suffering into communion. This is the biggest reason why we should choose to lament instead of to grumble. Because lamenting turns suffering into communion. When you've lamented in prayer, you can talk to others then, too, without spreading bitterness. Um, Then you're not grumbling uh, with others. You're not spreading bitterness. You're actually able then to spread communion with God. And so this is what the Bible has to say about this. In Psalm 38, um, in Psalm 38, verse 9, it says this. Listen to this. It says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Now, that's the verse in your bulletin. Yeah, it's it's, it's the first verse there in your bulletin on the inside cover. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. And so here the Bible is teaching us that when we're suffering, when we long for things, um, better to do it in the presence of God, not to hide it from him, but to bring it into his presence. I read an author who said this, the difference between lamenting something rather than grumbling about it is that lamenting looks to God for ultimate satisfaction. 
Longing leads us, lamenting leads us to care more for other people, whereas grumbling causes us to care less. And so the, the exercise for us, we need to learn how to state our frustrations as lamenting rather than grumbling. Okay, that's, that's, that's the invitation to us tonight. And so to grumble would be to say, I hate the way my wife doesn't respect me. Or I hate the way my husband treats me. Right, that's grumbling. What does that look like if you were to turn that into a lament? You might say, Father, I long for my marriage to heal. I long for, for me and for my spouse. I long for the person I'm in a relationship with to understand each other. Right Again, you're being honest about the situation. You're being honest about your frustration, but you're doing it in the form of a prayer into the presence of God. To grumble would be to say, I hate my job. My boss is awful. Like, I hate my work environment. Turning that into a lament. Heavenly Father, I long for a job that's more fulfilling. Heavenly Father, I wish that I was in a place of work where it was more positive and influence on me. Father, I would love to have a boss who seemed to care about me more than he cared about himself or herself, right? It's turning our grumbling into lamentation that actually then turns our suffering into communion. We grumble and we say, man, those people, they're evil, right? Whatever they are, those people, that person, are just evil. Turn that into a lament, and we'd say, Father, I've been hurt, and I'm really struggling to respond the way that you would want me to. Right? You feel the difference there? I mean, every time we're suffering, and it could be big, long, drawn-out suffering, or it can be little, tiny paper cuts that we deal with. I mean, the choice is ours. We can grumble, or we can lament. When we turn our honest struggles into honest prayers of lament, being honest with God, we look to him for answers and strength. Um, I want you to look at the next verse that's in your bulletin. It's Psalm 107, verse 9. This is what happens when we lament in our prayers. It says, For he, this is God, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This is what God does when we lament. He comes near, and He becomes our satisfaction. He fills our hungry souls with His presence, with His approval, with His love, with His patience. And it begins to transform us. And so, with the first songs that we're going to sing tonight, um, they're going to help us learn how to lament. Okay, the first one is a song that God's people have been singing, actually, for over 3,000 years. Okay, we're going to be singing a song that's based on Psalm 13. Um, and this is 3,000 years of history. Have people have taken these words to their lips for 3,000 years so that they could turn their grumbling into lament. So let's sing this song together.
I love that that song is right out of the Bible. And God is teaching us to pray this way. We don't often usually think about lamenting, about going to God in our suffering, because I think oftentimes we think, well, if God really cared, we wouldn't be suffering. So God must not care. He must be far away. And I think about Jesus, right? As we think about the life and the ministry of Jesus, I think there were, I would say there's probably a lot of people that might have felt like they couldn't relate to Jesus. You know, Jesus shows up, and to some, he was one of those people, like the people on social media who seem to have the perfect life. You know, where you watch them and you just think, wow, they must be perfect. They must never struggle. Or that person seems to get everything that they wanted. I think there were people that might have thought about Jesus that way, right? He's teaching. He's got all these crowds around him. He's doing these miracles. Nothing ever seems to have gone wrong. What does Jesus know about suffering? Do you think that way about Jesus? Do you wonder where God is when you're suffering? think so often we think if God were with me my life would look more like this picture of Jesus's life but I'm here to tell you that today tonight this week this year um, if you're suffering God may be closer to you than you think I want to look now a little bit at the life of Jesus Because while there were amazing things that happened in the life of Jesus, there were wonderful things that he did, there was another clear theme in Jesus' life. um, And that was that Jesus knows what it is to suffer and to have to wait. At age 12, Jesus was in the temple. Uh, His parents and his family were, were at a national party. And his parents left to go home realized Jesus wasn't with them, and they had to come back. They had to come back, and they they looked all over, and they found him. And when they found him, they scolded him. And I just want to share with you what happened in Luke chapter 2, verses 48 to 50. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Jesus knew that he was someone special. Jesus knew that there was a calling from God on his life. But already at the age of 12, he was getting a taste. He was beginning to learn that people around him wouldn't understand him or the calling that God had in his life. He began to understand that he was going to suffer from, I mean, starting with his parents. He was going to suffer because people didn't understand. He was 12 here. And after this episode... God required Jesus to wait an additional, like another 18 years before he even started his ministry. And so for at least 18 years, Jesus was stuck waiting to be who he was called to be. 
18 years of working as a carpenter, waiting. Friends, how long have you had to wait? How long have you been waiting in your circumstances that you wish would change? How long have you been stuck wanting to break a habit or get free from an addiction? Do you think Jesus doesn't understand? And even after his ministry began, even after this, you know, social media perfection kind of life that Jesus was living, even after that ministry began, Jesus still had to wait. There's this another episode of Jesus and his mom where Jesus is at a wedding and they run out of wine. And his mom goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus' response to his mom is, my hour has not yet come. Mom, I want to help. But this isn't, I, 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 this isn't my time. You have these expectations of me, and I don't know if I can fulfill them. In other places of Jesus' life, people were impatient with Jesus. Uh, they misunderstood Jesus. Do you ever feel that way? Like the people around you don't understand? Uh, the people around you are impatient? Can you relate to Jesus? Because he knows what it's like for you. There were people that wanted to use Jesus for their own agenda. Like they had ideas about what they could do with this guy, this itinerant teacher, miracle worker. They were trying to shoehorn God into doing what they wanted. Have you ever felt manipulated? And it wasn't just the crowds. It wasn't just people who were strangers to Jesus, but even those closest to him. His mom, but then like, even his cousin. His cousin was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who announced Jesus to the crowds. He was the one who came before to sort of set the table, to roll the red carpet out so that when Jesus came, people would know who he was. He was the forerunner of Jesus. And then toward the end of his life, Jesus' own cousin, this one who was so close to him growing up, began to doubt. There was a point where he sent messengers to Jesus and he said, are you really the one? Are you really him? And the subtext of that question, John the Baptist was in prison and he's wondering, like, this isn't how it was supposed to turn out, Jesus. Are you really the one? I think about how that must have cut Jesus for someone so close to doubt, to not understand. I mean, the crowds are hard enough, but then the disciples, those closest to him, don't even understand. They don't get it. Jesus even tried to tell them, hey, this is what's in store for me. This is what I'm going to have to face. And while Jesus is explaining this to them, they're not listening to Jesus, but instead they're arguing over who's going to sit in the best seat in Jesus' palace. Do you ever feel like the people around you just don't understand what you're going through? 
Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest disciples, betrayed with a kiss, this act of love and solidarity. And so again, do you think Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to suffer the way that you suffer? And in all of this, Jesus never sinned. He never grumbled. Right? Instead, Jesus lamented. He lamented. He brought his struggles into the presence of God. Even as the God-man, hear this, Jesus knew he couldn't do it alone. And so we see Jesus time and time and time again going into the presence of his God and Father, in a mystery that we cannot understand. We have God praying to God and God the Father giving him the strength that he needs to carry on. Look at the next, um, oh wait, I'm so, so wait, there's, um, yeah, yeah, the next verse in your bulletin, in Hebrews 5, 7, it says this. Look and see Jesus not grumbling, but lamenting. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And so it was never Jesus versus God. It was never Jesus plus circumstances versus God. Okay, it was always the circumstances versus Jesus plus God. And even the one time it was Jesus and the circumstances versus God, it wasn't. Okay? There was a time where the circumstances, Jesus went to God and said, hey, can we change this up? I don't want these circumstances. In Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then listen to him. Listen to him. Here it looks like Jesus is on the side of the circumstances. But no, he wasn't. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus always lamented his struggles in the presence of God, and he humbly submitted to God. And in that, God strengthened him. So for us, right, if we're going to be honest, we grumble, we complain, we retaliate. We're filled with self-pity. We get passive-aggressive. I mean, in all these ways, we sin against other people. We sin against God. But the Bible is calling us to wait and to lament while we wait. Friends, I want you to understand that Jesus can give you his power so that you can lament and not grumble. In the worst situations, you can go to him and he will lament with you. The song we just sang, that we will behold your face. The face that we behold is the face of Jesus who suffered just like we do and looks at us with eyes that are filled with, like, with deep sadness and tears. And he says, I understand. I understand. Let's lament together.
This next song that we're going to sing, it's a, it's a different version of the same psalm. It's a different version of the same of Psalm 13. This time, though, when we sing it, I want you to remember and to understand that Jesus sang all of the psalms. He was a good Hebrew boy, and so as he grew up, and in, in the, I mean, for his entire life, he sang the psalms. And so I want you to think about and meditate on the fact that as you sing and lament with the struggles that you have, as you bring those to God, realize that Jesus is singing right along with you.
we're going to turn now to, um, we're going to celebrate communion. And communion was an incredibly significant climax to the resolution of the tension of waiting and suffering for the disciples of Jesus. Okay, we're going to observe communion in a way that's a little bit different. And I want you to understand how the disciples would have thought about communion. Okay, uh, communion that we observe, it comes from the Last Supper. Right, the Last Supper um, in Jesus' life meant it was, a, it was a declaration that the waiting time was over. Okay, um, the Passover meal was a celebration of the Old Testament event of the Exodus. Okay? And the Exodus was the greatest act of God in human history in the Old Testament. Right? There was nothing greater than the Exodus, where Israel was in bondage to slavery. Right? They were enslaved in Egypt, and they were in bondage there. And they were under the oppressive regime of the Egyptians. And God, with incredible power and incredible glorious might, set them free. He not only destroyed the Egyptians, but he brought Israel out of, the, out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea. He parted the seas in this amazing, miraculous way. Um, and it caused, and Israel walked all the way through, and when they were chased in, then the water swallowed up the Egyptian army. I mean, this was, the, this was like the biggest superpower in, in the world at the time. And Israel literally walked out. And so the Exodus was something that Israel celebrated year after year after year because they just never, ever wanted to forget the power of God and the victory of God. And so every time when in Jesus' life, in the disciples' life, when they would observe the, uh, the Passover, they would think, oh man, it's coming. Oh man, it's coming. God is going to give us a new Exodus. He's going to set us free from our bondage and our oppression and that's what the Last Supper was. Okay, the Last Supper was, it was like the night before the Exodus, where God comes near with the assurance of salvation. This is what the disciples wanted. They had been waiting for Jesus to take control, right? The enemies of Jesus would be conquered and they would have victory. Okay, and this Last Supper was toward the end of the final week of Jesus' life. Right? You might remember that there's this theme that happens, um, that all of a sudden Peter, on behalf of the apostles, confesses that, Jesus, you are the Christ. We finally get it. We understand who you are. And Jesus says, fabulous. Okay, it's time. Now my hour has finally come. And so Jesus leads his disciples, and he leads this band of followers to Jerusalem, where the climax of the conflict that's going to happen with the religious leaders of the time is going to happen, okay? And so Jesus comes, and when he gets to the outside of Jerusalem, all of the crowds come pouring out of Jerusalem. It's almost like they roll the red carpet out, and they hail Jesus as the coming king. The whole city is like in this uproar, and they're declaring that Jesus is the coming king of God who's going to set up. Everyone hailed him. Everyone worshiped him. Jesus began to teach during that week, and he was drawing more and more and more people. The crowds were coming. 
the religious leaders were even trying to get in and disrupt what Jesus was doing. And they were trying to trap him and ensnare him. And they were kind of like media people who come in and try to embarrass him and ask him questions that you can't answer so that they could, you know, they could embarrass Jesus. And every single time when Jesus was put to the test, he comes out of nowhere with an answer that shuts them down and makes him look even better. I mean, it was crazy this whole week. And so the disciples are realizing, oh, Jesus says this is his hour. He's coming to reign. He's coming to reign. And then they observe the Passover and they put two and two together and they realize, oh my goodness, Jesus is like Moses and he's about to lead us into our freedom. He is about to establish the kingdom of God. He is going to take the throne as God's true king. And so on that night, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Eat, drink. And I think the disciples would have thought, hey, wait a second. Okay, what Jesus is saying here is, let my teachings feed you. Derive strength from who I am and follow me. The wait is over. It's now time. It is now time to bring the kingdom Friends, this is the message of Jesus for us when we come to the communion table. Jesus says to us, listen, I understand your suffering. I've suffered just like you. I understand how difficult life is and can be. And I'm here to meet your needs. I am here so that you will know that you're not alone. I'm here so that in your circumstances, in your relationships, in your sinful heart, you are not alone. Jesus says, not only am I with you, but the image here is that I am now going to be in you. I mean, that's the image, right? We are what we eat. We take the bread, we take the wine, these pictures of Jesus's body and blood. And what this is, what the communion table is, this is proof that when we lament, God comes to us in Jesus. This, in so many ways, is God's answer to your lamentation. And so tonight, tonight, if you need Jesus, I want you to come if you need strength, if you need to know you're not alone, I want you to come. Turn your suffering, your complaints, your grumbling into lamentation and see Jesus give himself for you. We're going to observe communion, like I said, in a different way. We have four tables that have been set up. And what I'm going to do is, after we remember the words of institution, the words that Jesus used, um, we are going to um, have one of our elders sitting at each of the tables. And when you're ready to come to the communion table, um, you can come. You don't have to get in line. You don't have to, um, if you're ready right away, then just come on up. We have chairs at each table. Just come and sit. And one of the elders will serve you uh, communion. And um, so what you'll do is you'll take a piece of the bread, you'll dip it in, we have cups that, the metal cups have wine, the ceramic cups have juice. 
and so you'll dip the bread in the wine or the juice, um, and then you can take communion. And if you want to sit and bring Jesus your struggles, your suffering, your frustration, um, you can take as much time as you want. Um, you can sit here at the table and stay. It's, it's very much, we want you to feel like you're coming forward to sit with Jesus. And so, um, if you're trusting Jesus tonight, I, I ask you to come. Come and see that Jesus is the answer to your lamentations. Um, if you're not a Christian here tonight, for those of you who haven't put your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to become a Christian now. I mean, why wouldn't you want to follow this Jesus who understands exactly how you feel, what you've dealt with, what you are dealing with? Um, confess to him that you haven't been following him and tell him, ask him to forgive you and to accept you, and then you can come and experience communion. Um, if you're not ready to do that, then I would just encourage you to pray to Jesus and ask him, Jesus, if you are real, can you help me understand um, how you can be with me in my suffering? And so let's pray. Um, let's pray together and ask God to meet us here um, at this table. Heavenly Father, we come now and ask that you would meet us here. Jesus, for all of us, we have grumbled. We have sinfully complained to you. We have hurt others. We have run away from you. We confess that. Forgive us and meet us here and show us in a tangible way that we are not alone. We pray this in your name. Amen. During this time where we have communion, um, as I said, you can come up when you're ready to come. You can stay as long as you want before returning to your seats. Um, we're going to have music playing, but then we're also going to have members of our prayer team um, that should they'll be stationed on that side, um, sort of behind the screen, and then over there as well. And so if you need someone to pray with you or pray for you, they'd love to do that as well. So um, take advantage of that um, as we observe communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this and remember me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood will be shed for you so that your sins can be washed away. Drink this and remember me. Brothers and sisters, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we commune with Jesus. He comes near to us. He turns our grumbling into lamentation. He turns our lamentation into communion. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good.
Friends, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you have loved us so powerfully and so personally. We can't do this. We don't have the strength. And you did it for us. And then you share your life with us so that truly we are not alone. Thank you. Praise be to you for loving us and inviting us to share in your victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion was this incredible victory celebration. But after communion, for the disciples, everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. It seemed like God had abandoned them because right after this meal, the disciples failed to support Jesus. Um, one of the 12 betrayed him to conspirators. Jesus was arrested. He was accused. He was tried. He was condemned. And then he was tortured. He was mocked. And ultimately, he was crucified. And overall, Jesus was conquered. He was conquered. God's kingdom that Jesus was bringing was defeated. The enemies won, and Jesus on the cross lost. The disciples were left with nothing. The disciples, all of their eggs were in the Jesus basket, and that basket came crumbling down, crashing to the ground, and everything had shattered before their eyes. And so the cross was the record screech, the record scratch to this, in, this amazing crescendoing story. Everything went wrong. Now these next two songs um, that will be sung, they are meditations that capture the despair that would have been felt, that was felt by the disciples as they watched their Savior die. And I want you to please silently meditate on these lyrics as they are sung. Oh, 
disciples left the scene of the cross afraid and in despair. Was the cross a failure? 
Or was maybe God asking Jesus and the disciples one more time to wait? Come back on Sunday and find out. You're dismissed.